Hi, everybody. Welcome to Artifice episode 137. The big reminder is the album release show for The Hallowed Wide is next weekend. Um, it'll be October 22nd. I think that should be next weekend when this comes out. Time is confusing. October 22nd in Provo, Utah. It is going to be an incredible show. Um, we had our first rehearsal na- last night and I'm just, I'm so excited. Um, so please, 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 if you are in or near Utah, come and see the show. It's, there's so many artists involved. Um, you know, if you're part of this like local scene, it's like, it's a show to not miss. Um, and the final two songs from the hallowed wide will be out next week as well. Tracks 11 and 12. Woo. I'm excited and I feel many feelings about this. Um, okay. Today's episode is with Robert Baldwin, who I have been like thinking about interviewing for such a long time. And I wanted to kind of wait until the right moment when I'd had the right amount of practice, et cetera, um, to properly interview this guest. Um, Robert is just someone that I've just looked up to as long as I've lived in Utah. And it's just a, a great honor to have him on the podcast. Robert's bio is extremely long because he has done so many things. So I'm just going to read you the first paragraph and then give you a couple of highlights. Robert Baldwin is director of orchestras and professor of conducting at the University of Utah and music director and conductor for the Salt Lake Symphony. He is also the founding conductor for Symphonia Salt Lake, a professional chamber orchestra that made its critically acclaimed debut in 2016. In 2019, he was appointed to an adjunct position at the Wuhan University Center for the Arts in Wuhan, China. Um, Robert Baldwin has appeared as a conductor all over um, the world, really, Um, has also been uh, featured in many, um, what's the word, ensembles as a viola player violist and he has also a ton of incredible teaching experience um and a brand new thing that's not in this bio he just published his first book of poems and we didn't talk about this but i'm reading it here he also has an award-winning music blog um music and creativity blog called before the downbeat so i would like to check that out as well before the downbeat.wordpress.com um Yeah, I think keeping this intro short and sweet feels right to me for today because I have got a ton of stuff to do, Um, but this is a great conversation with a great creative mind. Um, Again, just such an honor to have Robert Baldwin on the podcast. So without further ado, please enjoy this interview, and I hope to see you next week at the Hallowed Wide album release show. All right, everybody, here comes. Great art almost feels like magic. It opens our minds to brand new ideas and teaches us to see ourselves and our world more clearly. Of course, behind all great art, there are artists. And I think that's where the real magic happens. As we go beneath the art itself to explore how artists do what they do, we see glimpses of the sorts of creativity and resilience that lead to the art that moves our world. And maybe we can learn to borrow some of that magic for our own thinking. That's the goal here. And now that we're on the same page, let's dive in. I'm Emily Merrill, and this is Artifice. Okay, good. Yeah, it's Tell me if that sounds about right. It sounds beautiful. Great. Any questions before we start? Not really. Okay, Let's just go for it. Well, um, I I was thinking last night about about having you on today, um, 
you know, when I very first moved to Utah, I'm not from here. I don't know if you knew that. I mean, I'm married into the Merrill family and you've known them forever. I have. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, but, uh, but I'm not from here. So when Andrew and I moved here, I had just finished my master's at North Texas. Um, and like the, the day that we moved here, um, there was, you guys had a concert. So I came to see the Salt Lake Symphony. It was like the first music that I saw in the state of Utah. And, um, I've been to a bunch of your concerts. I, I wish I could come to more. It's hard when we're always working at the same time. It is, um, but that's really exciting that you were yeah. at the first, and the first musical experience you had was the Salt Lake Symphony. Totally. In and, Utah. Wow. And I like remember it. Like I, I have it in my heart as like a, you know, this is my new community. Like it really kind of felt like something. So, um, you know, and Gary and Lori always speak like so highly of you. And since we've been Facebook friends for a minute, I have a sneaking suspicion that we might be like kindred creative souls. Oh, okay. <laughs> then we'll, we can figure this out. Then. Yeah, we'll see. So I like to start by talking with everybody about their childhoods. Um, I'm specifically interested in kind of the origins of your creative development. So, um, so we can talk first about kind of like what your family was like in terms of creativity or just kind of what your earliest kind of evidence of creative shenanigans was. Yeah, sure. Um, my f childhood was not one of those kind of typical music, um, music pressure homes. cooker. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was um, it was a very creative home in that my parents were uh, into lots of creative projects, everything cool. from, you know, craft, arts and crafts types of things, embroidery and gardening awesome. and that type of thing. But it was uh, kind of left to us kids to find what we were interested That's in. Amazing. Are so, you from here? Uh, no, from Colorado, actually. Okay, cool. Colorado Springs cool. Uh, is where I grew up. And um, some of my earliest experiences, I mean, I was a, a, a tap dancer when I was little oh <laughs> and then got, of course, into music. And I'm, I'm a proud uh, product of public school music. Yeah, me too. The typical thing where the teacher came into the classroom and said, hey, who wants to play an orchestra next year? And here are these, these cool instruments. Right. And I went home and told my parents I wanted to do it. And that's how it started. I mean, I it was as it. easy as that. That's amazing. Where are you in like the birth order? I am the oldest. You're the oldest. I'm, I'm the oldest, 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 I'm the oldest of two. two. So yeah. <laughs> it's the beginning of maybe some similarities. That's right. Right there. We, <laughs> um, we know some things there. You so frequently post things that I'm like, that sounds like something I would say. <laughs> like, um, I, I don't know. I just like, I'm, I'm a fan. Oh, <laughs> fan well, already. Um, so, so there was a lot of creativity in the house, mediums around, like was, was one of your parents teaching you embroidery? Like, you know, they, they always offered up these, these ideas, like as a family, let's do these projects. And my mom would oh, do wow. everything from, you know, making Christmas ornaments and we would all like little wooden ornaments and we would paint them. And, and mine would always turn out, in my opinion, the worst because I just don't have the visual yeah. uh, creative side, but they still, they just always um, encouraged us to, to have those opportunities. Yeah. And, you know, my sister, I think, picked up on that. She does a lot of that creative stuff, that cool. arts and crafts kind of thing still. Um, and mine just happened to be channeled towards music. I and, love that. And my okay. parents loved it. They were, they were um, part of, part of the, the reason that I became a musician is they were supportive the entire way. Yeah. That's incredible. I do not share that experience with you, <laughs> but I do, I do feel, you know, when I, when I very first started dating Andrew, so we've been together 13 years, which is crazy. That seems 
too long for as young as we are. <laughs> That's Mormon, you know. <laughs> but anyway, um, I remember when I very first started dating Andrew and kind of met the Merrills and was getting to know them. I was blown away by how supportive they are. Like that's definitely a similar ethos of like, you know, Andrew ended up majoring in physics, but he started out in jazz drums. And I think Lori and Gary would have just been equally happy either way, which is yeah, just, you know, it's a part kind of, of mind the culture blowing to me. It really is part of the culture uh, where you've got the, the idea of fostering that, whether or not someone decides to become a musician. Right. Uh, and the Salt Lake Symphony is a collection of non-professional musicians yeah. who play at a very high level and still like doing their art. Yeah. Uh, but it's, you know, something that, that wouldn't have happened, that wouldn't exist if that culture wasn't fostered of doing music right. and uh, all the way through college, really. Yeah, it, it, you're really right. Yeah, you're right. I think I think it... it, uh, it it tweaks a little from family to family, but that's certainly something that we see a lot here in the state of Utah, especially for classical music, I find, or, or like the classical arts versus kind of like fringe arts. <laughs> right, right. But, but I think that's the opening to the fringe yeah. arts. Often people come through oh, the classical, absolutely. they're piano, study piano or right. the kind of the expected things you do when you're when, when you're, you're a young. child. Yeah. So I love the idea that these creative projects were presented as like family like experiments. Um, that's beautiful. W what about your dad? Any mediums that he was into? Uh, well, he's still into um, he, uh, arts of different types. His main thing now is leather painting, which is the wow. strangest thing. You think of what is that? And it's uh, basically taking these pieces of leather, you cut it and you, you imprint a, a, you know, a, a picture of a bird or yeah. a barn or something like that on it. And then he paints it and he oh sells it at craft shows. He's, he's a, uh, 82 and Holy still, cow. still does that. That's how he passes his time. I so I love that yeah. so much. Yeah. And I, I'm really into this idea of like, as a family, we're going to try something like, cause I, one thing I think about a lot, like my parents definitely encouraged crafts and creative stuff as for us as children. There, there certainly was a turning point in my family where like, but this is something for children, you know, like this isn't something that adults do. So to see your parents like engaged in those things, I have to imagine that tells you a lot about the permanent value of these things. Oh, absolutely. And uh, <laughs> even if it's just a hobby, you know, avocational type of thing, um, it was something of value. Yeah. And I could tell that. And I, I think that goes back even to my, my grandparents on my mom's side that that was, um, you know, the, the types of things they engaged yeah. in before television and all of those things sort of took the attention away. And right. I'm, I'm very lucky that, you know, even though I grew up in the 70s and had all of those things, television, yeah. and, uh, that my parents kind of kept that uh, that that value yeah. that they instilled in I us. I was going to say earlier, like, it sounds like it was like a value system. Like, it's like in the family like principles. It, yeah, it really is. Even though it's, I don't think it was written down anywhere. Yeah. And, and sometimes as kids, we rebelled against it. Sure. Of course, we'd rather, you know, be out playing with our friends or doing something. But was that ever like verbalized? Like, do you remember ever having family conversations about like the arts? Um, not in in a sense of um, that's something that we should do, like a like a, philos a philosophical discussion at the ta dinner table or anything yeah. like that. It was just something that we did. Yeah. And um, same thing when we got into, my sister and I got into tap dancing and then uh, music huh. soon after that. Yeah. Something that we did was 
go to concerts. My parents would always come to our concerts. They yeah. would take us to our music lessons wow. or our dance lessons or dance, you they know, were rehearsals. Invested. Yeah. It completely. wasn't just like, here's a place to dump your kids. That's right. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Um, when did you start writing? Cause I know you write a lot now. Yeah, I, that's an interesting one because, you know, I can trace back music to sure. I, the fourth Starting grade. Lessons. I Right, started, uh, picked up an instrument for the first time. Um, I think writing goes back to, to a creative way of expressing myself uh, that goes back to probably to, to grade school as yeah. well. Um, doing something a little more creative with it is, I would say, probably in the last 10 or 15 years was yeah. where I really sort of took off a di- in a different direction. Sure. Um, We'll get that, there. We'll talk about all yeah, of it. Yeah, for sure. I for love sure. it. Well, and composing is writing, of course. Like, yeah. it comes from the same, you know, place. At least it, it does for me. Um, okay, I wanted to also ask, well, how did you get into tap dancing? Like, that's like... For you and your sister to be doing that, how did that happen? I, I think, um, if I remember correctly, my sister started, and I, I saw her practicing oh. in the basement, and I thought, oh, that looks like fun. I could do that. And so I sort of was, you know, uh, yeah. just kind of mimicking these, you know, basic steps that she was learning. And my, my mom asked, she said, hey, do you want to join us and, and take some lessons too? And I said, sure, why not? It looks like wow. fun. And so we did the whole, you know, we danced probably three or four years. That was it. And we did the whole nursing home circuit. I mean, you know, the, what you do with the little kids that go out and dance totally. and do that sort of thing. Do you remember, and, and maybe you don't, but do you remember whether it was like more about the rhythm and the music or like about the dancing or like, do you remember how you thought about it? You know, for me, it was about the steps. And as I look back on it now as a conductor, I deal with rhythm and subdivision of rhythm yeah. all the time. Right. And I think that is looking back on it, yeah. something that I was good at. Totally. And I, and I became a conductor because also it was something I was pretty good at yeah. because you have to be, to be a conductor. Right. I, um, I took dance as a kid too and was never graceful, but was always good at rhythm. And I also kind of think of that sometimes as like, there's that kind of like early evidence of something. I'm sort of obsessed as an adult creative with like the origins of creativity. Like what is talent? Like are these things teachable? And, you know, I feel pretty like growth mindset about all of it, but it is interesting to look back at the childhood and think like, I was just kind of good at rhythm. I think there's some things that are innate. I think I I do. I I don't think talent, I don't think that it's, it's something you're either born with or not. And so you should just quit music if you, if you, if you don't feel you were born with it. Uh, But I do think that we're drawn to things that we're good at, whether it's, you know, math or, writing, spelling, you know, all right. of the things we do as, as young kids. Yeah. Um, and those things lead to other, those paths open other doors. Right. And, and we, you know, can go down those paths if we so choose. And some people do, maybe it, it is right. that drive that then takes us further down those it's roads. It's so interesting. Cause you know, after having done over a hundred of these interviews that are like these deep dive interviews, I mean, ask similar questions to a lot of artists who are in different mediums from different places, you know, who have all different backgrounds. Um, you know, one, I don't, I haven't found any patterns, which is like, that's interesting. Really cool. Yeah. I think when I started the project, I I thought for sure I would discover some patterns. Um, and I really haven't, but you know, one, one interesting thing that I've noticed is when I talk with artists about their childhood and their very beginning relationship with creativity or their specific medium that they kind of have, you know, staked a claim in pretty frequently people will tell me like, Oh, I was, you know, I was kind of naturally good at this but also a lot of times people tell me I was not naturally good at this but I just was so interested in it you know and I almost feel like that's like 
that's maybe more of the thing. Like this is something that, you know, maybe I have an affinity for, but even more than that, I just can't get enough of it. I think that's exactly right. Um, the, it, it gets us to think that we, we have to do more. We have to find that right. even at the very beginning levels, it's turning the page of your beginning book to go from Twinkle Twinkle Little Star to Mary Had a Little Lamb. I can't wait to get to that Hot next piece. Buns. That's yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> and and um, I, I can even think back to being excited to like uh, go from String Builder book one when I got to graduate oh, yeah. into book two. Totally. It was a huge celebration kind of event in my mind that I right. was progressing. Oh man, I really relate to that. Or like, like looking ahead in the piano book, like almost like it's cheating and being like, you know, seeing flats and being like, what are those? And then like seeing like the pedal, you know? <laughs> and that leads to <laughs> when you get more advanced to the next concerto. You know, right. you're working on this big piece and well, what's next after, right. after I finish this concerto, I can then maybe move on to that. Totally. And when you get to be the, the, you know, a professional level, you then get to choose that yourself. Your teacher chooses it for you. There's yeah. a, there's a reason for that. But then when you get to that level, um, I think where the creativity really blooms is when you can decide that yourself, Right. you can say, oh, now so I have fun. these projects in yeah. front of me, which one do I want to do next? Yeah. I love it so much. Andrew is always talking to me about, cause you know, he loves music too. I don't know how well you know him, but he, he started off, um, with a scholarship for jazz drums at BYU and he decided to switch to physics. And, you know, he and I talk about this a lot as, you know, I have stayed a professional musician and he's kind of moved somewhere else, but we both were really invested in music as teenagers and as young adults. Um, and he, he always, he kind of will say like, watching you do this job makes me know that like, I shouldn't have, I, sh I made the right choice because I don't have this like new project on the horizon. Like, you know, I get so excited about it and, and I don't need to be motivated by external forces. Cause I'm just like, I just want to do the project. <laughs> like It feels so good. Right. I mean, and that thinking about the next thing, I mean, that's what makes a, a creative career, I right. think, as, a, as opposed to just a creative venture, right. which, which everyone does. But the creative career is thinking about the next thing. That's People really will often point. ask me when I you know, list, here's what we're doing next season for an orchestra program. Um, they'll say, well, when do you start thinking about this? Well, and six it's years like, ago. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, not, it's not that I'm not thinking about it when we're in the middle of something. I mean, I'm already planning those right. things. Yeah. And a lot of those ideas go, you know, just get thrown in the, in the waste bin. Um, but you, it's important right. to think about them to think about these possibilities. Right. And it's not because you're like neurotic and planning ahead. It's because you're just like excited. Yes. Like, yeah. I have this vision of like this type of a program or like, yeah, I had a teacher at North Texas who said like, just imagine a concert that you'd love to do. Like imagine a set list that would be, or like a, a theme or like, a, you know, who else is playing with you. And like, write, design the program, like write the program and then like make it happen. Yep. I feel like so like that idea just felt so like, of course, that's what I should do to me. And I think people that don't do this for a living sometimes don't realize how much energy that takes and how oh, much yeah. of our time we actually are thinking about this. 
We're right. not just practicing and preparing for what we're in the, the middle of doing. It really takes a lot of mental right. mental uh, energy to, to think about that. Yeah, that's why this podcast is called Artifice. Like, it's a great word. And also, I think there are these inherent, like, unknowable, you know, this mental and emotional work that we're doing as artists. I think our culture gets really fixated on, like, the product, you know, like, what's the finished thing? But uh, we all know as artists that that's like the tiniest fraction of what we're doing. <laughs> that's right. I mean, that's uh, that's where we get all the the applause and the, you know, the, the, the fact that we've finally accomplished something. But it, I mean, it, it sounds cliche, but it is the journey. Yeah. Including from when you think about it at the breakfast table four years before that, that yep. thing actually happens. Yep. Or write a weird note to yourself in your phone in the middle of the night. Right. <laughs> a a line that, that is going to become a song or a or poem or, or something the that title you... of a whole series. Yep. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. I, I find it so fascinating. Like, and, and I know like there are so many, you know, interviewers or, or platforms where artists get asked about their products. And I just feel like it's not even remotely the most interesting thing. <laughs> so that's why this is about like all that other stuff. It, it's tough though, because we spend all that time for that one hour, two hours right. in front of the audience and that's all they see. Right. Um, right. And so right. that it appears that that's, that's the only that's thing, the thing that's there. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it makes it mysterious to people. Like, you know, we all as artists will joke about like, you know, people being like, well, I would love to do that if I was talented enough. And artists are like, if you would love to do it, you would maybe be doing it, you know, it's yeah. like, um, but I think it's because like people can't even fathom like what it is that is actually the difference between someone who's doing the thing and someone who, you know, had it as a hobby at some point. Um, it's like this kind of beautiful obsession. <laughs> like yeah. That's a great way to think of it. Yeah. Beautiful obsession. That could be the title of a song. Yeah. You should write it. Oh, okay. <laughs> Um, okay. I have two more questions about your childhood. One is, um, did you, do you, do you know, or like, you know, parents having told you, or do you remember having like feelings about being creative or feeling like you were a, a different kind of a child? Like, did you, did you have a, an identity as a creative, as a child? Uh, that's a great question. And I think it's a good one to ask everyone I, I that do. does this. Yeah. That's good. Um, because the answer is yes. Yeah. And it has very little to do with the music side of things that, that, yeah. that evolved later. But when I think back of some of the, the crazy things I tried as a kid, yeah. like I organized an entire neighborhood Olympics. Love it. It was 1976. And we, we made a flag out of one of my mom's sheets and drew with the magic yeah. markers, the Olympic rings, flew it wow. off the house. <laughs> We had uh, we had medals that we made made little out of you know it's construction like a multimedia paper. Yeah. project. But I'm the one who did all of that. Everyone yeah. else was just they were willing to go along, yeah. and the fact that I could organize that right. at age what I would have been twelve, I think that's crazy. I think that would have been been nuts. Yeah, it's like um, event planning. Like yeah. I mean, that's programming. It's it's like you're orchestrating your peers, which that's is right. still what you do. Yeah. yeah. So cool. there's lots of little things like that that I can think back on. Yeah. And I. I it wasn't that I was the, the the popular kid in school that everyone just did what I did. I just came up with these ideas and I would talk to them and, and get them to going. I mean, it's like the cliche backyard play kind of thing. Yeah. We're going to put on a play with the family. Um, but this was even on a larger scale. And it, it was things that I think back on. And, and of course, they were 
it's only mildly successful sure, at the time. <laughs> sure. I, I wanted it to be like the the production of the Olympics that right. you watch on television. And it, of course you I did. Was, I was disappointed that it wasn't. <laughs> and that was a great so learning. Cute. It is. I and, love it. But it was a great learning potential for me. Yeah. That I could then say, okay, that didn't work really well. And then the next time, although I, I don't think I was rationally thinking about what I would fix. Of course. But it was experience that built on experience with lots of these little events. Yeah. I love these kinds of stories. Like I have had the the honor of hearing similar stories from so many people. And I mean, it's it moves me so much. Like just seeing like how far back the the beginning of the of those skills start. And and the and I think a lot as a teacher, because I teach children, I teach adults more often, but I, I do teach children. And when I see parents who, you know, have these ideas about what it's going to take for their child to like become something, or, you know, I'll hear parents say things sometimes that are so sad. Like they'll be like, well, I just don't think she's really good at this, you know, or mm. I don't think he's like, you know, or I think he has some real talent. And I, I just feel like, you're missing it. Like you're paying attention to the wrong things. And I feel like these stories are, are testaments to that, that it's like, it's not always like, it's not like, it's not like that meant that you were going to be an Olympian or right. that you were going to plan the Olympics. Right. It's like, exactly. you're, you're missing the forest for the trees. Yeah. And, and it's, it's not, it's not easy to, um, look at those experiences and not have a quantitative idea, just like the parent that tells right. you, I don't think they're talented enough. Right. What does that mean? We do, that, that can mean all kinds of things. They're, that's a loaded um, totally. comment. Yeah. And you don't know what journey your kid is on. That's right. You know? That's right. Yeah. So I, 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 you know, I think like this, the beginning of this project for me was many things. I started it kind of right after my mom died, um, right after I like left BYU and, and left the church. Um, and, you know, I was thinking a lot about the kind of grief of my own childhood and never having really been like welcomed in my family as a creative or just as a person. Um, and just thinking like, how can we do better, you know, and hoping that I would talk to other artists and have some answers maybe to like, how can parents do better? How can we as a people like cultivate creativity more? And I don't know, I, I'm, I'm obsessed with these kinds of stories of like, yeah, the beginning of my creativity wasn't in music. It's awesome. Yeah. It's I think so that's wonderful. the way for all of us. I mean, yeah. even the, the, those that started music at a very young age, you know, age three or four playing violin or something, yeah. um, they, they may have a career in violin, but it may not be the violin experiences that define who they are as creative artists. In fact, right. I, I would I would guess it's not those experiences. Right. Do, do you want to say more about that? Um, well, I just think it's the the fact that we, we pigeonhole people too much into certain definitions. Yeah. Like you are a violinist, you grew up as a Suzuki violinist, that means you're going to have a certain path. Right. And um, those people then that become musicians, we think that we define them looking back linearly back to, you know, the day they first picked up the instrument. Right. And that's not a life. The right. life is all of the other experiences you have. And those experiences vary. There's a certain similarity. Everyone sure. deals with, with success and they deal with disappointment. They deal with right. loss. And we have to come to grips with that at different times in our life. But most of that is a universal experience. Totally. Uh, and how we do that, deal with that individually is going to be a, a large part of what we become as creative artists. Right. right. Amen. My final question about your childhood is whether you remember taking in any media of any kind that 
um, you know, maybe you felt like, hey, I'm experiencing this differently from other kids my age. Like whether your experience of like taking in art. Um, do you mean like as I experience it or just like uh, separately? Either, but like, yeah, listen, you know, watching shows, reading books, listening to things like did, did you find yourself moved in what you maybe experienced yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I think the answer is yes, because I remember my biggest experience of Star Wars, watching the movie in 1977, yeah. standing in line, you know, it was my first experience with that whole thing, yeah. was not the visual effects, which mm-hmm. were, mm-hmm. I think, everyone else's big, big um, takeaway from that. It was John Williams' score, right. which now we look back on and say, that's probably the most last, lasting artistic achievement because we can look at the old film and say, well, that's the right. special effects aren't as good. The acting's not as good, whatever. But the music is just as good. That's such a good and point. By that time, I'd been engaged with music for four or five years um, as a you know young viola player. And there was something about the music. I went straight out and bought the RCA Record yeah. Club. I used to, you know, get that <laughs> was one of magazine. my yes, that was one of my one penny. You get you get yeah. thirteen <laughs> albums for a penny or something oh like that. Gosh. And that was one that I made sure I got because I remembered that music so powerfully. Yeah. And it wasn't something you could consume on the radio. You couldn't. And there was no internet. Right. You couldn't just find the album. Um, so it wasn't the, t- the normal types of, of things I was listening to, which right. was top 40 radio and, right. you know, a- occasionally starting by that time, uh, getting into listening to classical music sure. as well and being interested in that. Did your parents listen to classical music? Um, somewhat. My dad loved Strauss waltzes, still does. Yeah. Um, Everybody does. Yeah, it was, he used to, 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 you know, put those on and say, oh, I would just imagine what this was like. Um, and oh, um, he was picturing the Vienna ball. He was yeah. absolutely. <laughs> Um, actually, I've got to get him out for that event. I think yeah, he would really enjoy of that. Of course he would. Yeah. That's but amazing. Nothing but waltzes all night long. Yeah. Uh, but they, they, my parents listened to lots of different styles of music. And I think that also uh, had a very important impact on me. Yeah. Uh, my mom loved the big band uh, sound, yeah. Glenn Miller and that, that sort of thing. Great. Uh, and they, they also liked you know music from their era. They, they listened to a lot, which was late 1950s, early 60s. Yeah. Uh, music, you know, cool. the cro- the crooners and yeah. all that sort of thing. So I yep. grew up with a lot of that music too. Wow. It's yeah. all quality stuff. That's really interesting. I think I maybe have a similar experience in that particular way. Like as much as I, I, I rack my brain trying to figure out what was and is going on in my particular family. Cause there definitely was art around. It just, it just was really clear that it wasn't it was respected to an extent, you know, or it was respected as entertainment, but not as something that should challenge you or move you, you know? Um, I don't know. I think maybe my mom was a little bit more intuitive about that stuff than my dad. And my dad was in some ways a more dominant presence in the family. It's just, I don't know. I, it's a puzzle I'll never solve, but we'll never stop trying to solve, I think. But yeah, I mean, my parents, we had, like, if I think of the main things that were going on, there was like Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Which mm-hmm. is great. It's right. beautiful choral music. Um, there was a lot of like eighties pop and like funk, like Earth, Wind and Fire, Thriller, you know. So I think that's where like I learned subdivision, you know, like Definitely. I got my sixteenth notes like on lock listening to Earth, Wind and Fire as a kid. And then there was a ton of Broadway. So I think even just that kind of early exposure to, you know, genres that were so different from each other, um, you know, it gives you a hint as a little kid that the world is big, that, that the world 
the options are vast. Yeah, I think. I, and, and I think as most of our, our parents probably were, if they weren't professional musicians, they were consumers of art. Yeah. And so yeah. They, there, were th- there was something that, that attracted them, whether it was pop music or whether right. it was, you know, something uh, that maybe took a little more, a uh, little more brain cells to, sure. to kind of yeah. to appreciate. Yeah. Um, but there was this idea that, that it was something that was attractive to them. Yeah. And then they played it over and over again by, we have the advantage of living in the, you know, growing up in the 20th century of having, mediums that the record players and radios and things that would would constantly replay the music oh man i think about that so much even just hearing you talk about the rca catalog i mean i've heard other artists like talk about that um even you know for someone my age like you know getting someone to drive you to the store to buy a cd or some sheet music that you just had to hope was there um you know searching around trying to find something that level of investment that we had, that we had to put into consuming media, um, that's just doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> yeah. And it was really, <laughs> I wonder um, what it means. It was based on people would recommend things, right? I mean, obviously our family's sort of recommending things <laughs> because right. they're, they're playing what they like. Um, but in school people would say, Hey, have you ever, have you heard this earth, wind and fire tune or this, this piece by the right. Commodores? It's really cool. Right. And they couldn't, I mean, this was even, I'm, just pre Walkman age in, right. in junior high, right? Yeah. So they couldn't like, hey, put the headphones on and listen to this. Right. You'd have you to, to either, take their word for it, or you go to their house mm. and you'd go back into their bedroom and they had a little turntable and they would put it on. Yeah, and you'd say, wow, that's really what is cool. That? I need one. Yeah, yeah. I, I have a, totally. a very good friend who uh, is now he's a composer, composition teacher at uh, Cincinnati Conservatory. And I went, remember going to his house and him playing uh, records by Yes by the band Yes. Oh, yeah. And saying, you have to hear this. Yeah. And I think that was actually a really important part of my development, mm. kind of going from from the disco age to something, right. some music that had a little pop music Building that had- your taste. Yeah. Having your own advocacy. I think that means so much to a young artist. And, and I, I do wonder like how the kind of just sheer, you know, availability of everything will affect like the next generation of artists, you know, with regards to this question of- investment, uh, and, and building taste. Like who do you, who are you if you never have to look for, look to make any choices, you know? Yeah. I don't and know. Maybe it's, it's, we're saturated in the market. Yeah. The problem now is we have to figure out how to live with it. It's not going to change. Right. We we're right. just saturated with options and we can choose whatever we want, but there's right. so much to choose from. You're going to miss something. Yeah. Oh, it's a, it's a thought that strikes me with such fear. (laughs) I hate the idea of missing something amazing. So you started playing violin or viola? What did you start on? Actually viola. That's been the only instrument that I have played. I mean, I've played lots of other things. Um, not, not well, Sure. Uh, but viola was the the choice from the beginning. The one true love. Um, and how old were you again when you started? I was nine. So at that point, were, were you, invested in any other mediums um may, you know this is pre-video games even okay this is like pong was the only game okay. that was out yeah. we did we didn't have one i mean uh so this was um one of those those elements of 
that was something that I could do. Sure. I could go back into my room and play the instrument. Yeah. Um, I also had to be cajoled into practicing sure. like a lot of kids do. And once I took lessons, I realized there was a, a contract there mm-hmm. that my parents were paying for lessons and the teacher expected, you know, certain, certain things. And so I, I more or less went along with that with a few bumps along the way, yeah. like, like any kid. Yeah. Um, how, how did it evolve into something that you're pa- like passionate about, something you're wanting to pursue professionally? Like just what happened like in your late childhood teens? I think as I got into um, my teenage years, high school years, I started um, things that I was really good in in school. I started losing interest in mm. such as math. I was mm. very good early on in math. And when I got into high school, it just I didn't want to invest the brain cells into it anymore. And music was something I felt that I was getting something, instant feedback. It wasn't the math, you know, you do math program, a problem and you give it to the teacher and you get it back and you, you see, you see this progress of course, but with music, I could see the progress week to week, practice session by practice session. I could struggle with something, be frustrated, not being able Mm. to play a passage and then the next day, get up and be excited about trying that passage again. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I Even was when just... I would throw the instrument, almost <laughs> throw it down and just walk, stomp away yeah. at a certain point, I... Um, I wanted to get back to it because I had to master oh, it. I... Yeah. This. I was just talking about this with a student earlier this week. I think she's like 13 or 14. Um, and I just am always telling her, like, I just so badly want you to catch this vision of like, you practice and then it's better. Like, just like that. Like I just, cause she really struggles to practice. She's just not motivated to practice. And I feel like I just, you would love the feeling. I just know you would, but yeah, I feel like that's something that like it takes, I don't know. It takes some kind of something. And I think they have to find it themselves. Yeah. I think students do have to find that. And some yeah. students even come to college since I you know teach at a university, you see that they come to, with the idea of being music majors and realize, and maybe Andrew was this way too, yeah. after a couple of years, they don't have that drive to do that. Yeah, yeah. And it yeah. takes increasingly more drive until yeah. you're in your <laughs> maybe late 20s, early 30s, when, when it sort of just becomes so ingrained as a part of your life that that's just what you do. Right. Yeah. And, and then even then, I mean, I talk to my college students because I teach at UVU now. Um, I'll talk with my college students about, you know, they'll ask me some question that I just, they'll you know, when you were in school, did, you know, X, Y, Z. And I'll have to remind them, like, YouTube was invented my freshman year of college. Spotify, it was invented the year I graduated from my master's degree. Like the stuff that my students now and I now as a, you know, commercial vocalist have to think about didn't even exist, didn't even exist when I was in school. So, you know, it's like maybe we're more comfortable with some of it, but like this field is just, it just changes. It just changes so often that it's like, you know, maybe you're always at the beginning of something. It's changing really rapidly. And we find that, um, you know, it's one of those things that's hard to keep up with. Oh, yeah. And so the the best strategy is to know how to adapt to new these new things rather than just learning the new thing, because right. you're going to be, that's going to be obsolete perhaps in 10 years. Yeah. Something like you say, something new will come out. Right. And, yeah. and I don't doubt it. I don't it doubt will. it. Yeah. I, I tell my students all the time, the only thing we can know for sure is it's going to change. And if you're feeling obsessed, you know, right now in your early twenties, if you're feeling obsessed with trends and well, what's happening right now, like fine, but just know, 
this will end. Like, don't, don't build your entire, you know, identity around this moment. Don't build your entire skill set for this moment because it, it, it will, it will end. And, and, <laughs> it and will look at that. You've just defined the history of pop music, right. you know, yeah. that some people have this great fame and this great success and it lasts mere years, right. a couple right. of years. And then they're, they're, they're done because right. you have to be able to on. evolve. You, yeah. Yeah. You have to be able the to great, the great artists do also. Right. Yeah. And, you know, the the best artists, I think, evolve early enough that we're like, what are you doing? And then like 10 years later, we're all like, oh, OK, yeah, <laughs> I see it. <laughs> it took me a second. <laughs> yeah. But then oh, they're yeah. on there. They've since moved on to something else where we're thinking, what are they doing? Right. Right. Sting is a great example. I, yeah. I've followed his career ever since high school. You know, the police uh, that was when I was in high school when, wow. when that band was formed. And it was always something new. You were right. always looking forward to what they were doing because you didn't understand it. Yeah. Even right. that the early stuff oh, now that I sounds so cliche yeah. when you hear the early police, uh, it's like, wow, yeah. that was at the time we were listening to that thinking, what is this, what is this, this? new wave music? <laughs> what is this thing? I always think about Miles Davis that way too. Like he, Absolutely. he was always, he was always making every, all of his fans angry because he was just moving on to the next thing. And yeah, it's, he's it's, a great one because cool. if you think you like Miles Davis and then you download the next album, that's a great example you think, oh, this is different. This isn't what right. I expected. It's kind of blue, and then it's bitches brew. Like yep. just a f- just not many years later. That's <laughs> it's right. Crazy, or like you know, and then like sketches of Spain is in between there too, which is one of my favorite records of all time, and completely different from anything else. Uh, yeah, I I love it. He's he his career is always one that I I'll kind of think about, and also Pat Metheny. Oh, Those sure. Those are like groundbreakers for sure. You know, looking ahead. Um, so, so I never know how, how to ask this question. It's stuff that I love talking about, but like, it's one of those things where like, if you have thoughts of it, you'll know. And if you don't, then you don't. And that's fine. But I, I'm curious, like whether in your teens, you know, we go from having a love for music, you know, or whatever to kind of discovering what it actually means to get better at music, to study music. And I'm wondering if you have any kind of favorite, like, topics or discoveries or evolutions in yourself, like from kind of that time period? Yeah, probably late, late high school, but mainly early college when I would be playing a concert and it would be my first experience with like a, say for instance, a Brahms symphony. Mm. And I I didn't know what this was about. I just knew it was new music to learn and we, it was difficult and we've worked on it. Um, and then sometime during the process, either at the concert or when it gets close to the concert, when the, everything is coming together, there is a, a leap that happens mm. on a, if I can say it um, in a way, a spiritual level yeah. that the entire ensemble has has gone to a place that um, mm. it wasn't before. It wasn't at even close right. and everyone knows it. Mm, and it's the you, best feeling you walk out of a rehearsal and everyone is, is, you know, 10 feet high. in the air. Yeah. yeah. It's so exciting. Um, yeah. and that's one of those things. It's, it's not quantifiable. You can't say why it happens for some people. It's deeply spiritual. Mm-hmm. Uh, those, those experiences with music Yeah, and you, you just know that, that everything is clicking. 
you're not the Berlin Philharmonic, but you have played with the same conviction yeah, and passion right. that the Berlin Philharmonic has played. Right. With. And something special is happening in this exact moment. I totally yeah. know that feeling. In fact, I, I tried to tell my parents this. I was, I was specifically remember I was like, I was a junior in high school and I grew up in Arizona and we had gone to the jazz madrigal festival in Flagstaff. I don't know if you've been there. It's kind of big. I worked in Flagstaff for 10 okay, years. Yeah, you do know. Maybe you were there when I was there. Wait, when were you there? Uh, 80, 89 to 99. Okay, no, I oh, was okay. a small child. I was born in 88, so uh, okay, <laughs> I was a little tiny there. wee babe. Um, well, I still feel like we are cut from the same cloth, so, you know, age is... Age is Very time true. Time is a flat circle. Very true. But, uh, but when I was in high school, so I think it was 2004 that I was there. Maybe it was 2005, um, very beginning of 2005. But we we were doing this um, King Singers piece, and, uh, you know, our little group was maybe 16 singers all on mic, but for the madrigals, we would be off mic. And, uh, this particular piece had like 11 parts. So, you know, m- most of us were on our own part. Um, and we were singing in this little cathedral in Flagstaff, like this little church, you know, beautiful acoustics for, for a little place. And, I, we felt that thing, you know, of like, we're all working together to make this thing. And it was, there was just a silence in the room, you know? And I, I just came back from that trip and just thought I have to major in music. <laughs> like, you yeah. know, as much as it was, a uh, as much as it was not what my parents wanted, as much as I was really trying to talk myself out of it, it was just like, well, if that's a thing that exists in the world, there's not a choice here. <laughs> you want to be a part of it. <laughs> right. You want to be a part of it. Um, and, and I would even say that that was, that type of experience was the kind of thing that when I would doubt myself and be having a kind of, you know, fall, fall into the pit of, um, you know, wondering, am I doing the right thing? Yeah. Those were the types of things that brought me out yeah. where I would say, well, I can't do anything but this. Right. I cannot imagine my life doing anything but this. Yeah. And I've had several teachers and I think it's a universal thing that, that music teachers tell their students, um, you know, the, the. If you have the idea you can imagine yourself doing something else, you should do that. But if you can only imagine yourself doing music, that's what you have to do. And and that's the focus. And that means you have to do what it takes to do it. Put the practice room hours in and do all of the... You know, all of the the things that are sacrifices right. in, in life to make sure that you're ready for that experience. So interesting. And just having the thought that, like, I think our culture loves to talk about, you know, an individual or, a, a, you know, a talent being undeniable. But I think, like, mo- much more often, if not always, it's like the music is undeniable to the person, you know, like the art, the art is the thing that's undeniable. It's a great way to think about it. It's yeah, it's the, it, it it's not the, about the person. It's about the person's relationship with the art. Right. Right. Well, cause we've all known these people who are brilliant musicians, you know, like prodigy level who don't have that, who don't right. have that. Yeah. They play, you know? they play well. They even communicate well. Yeah. And I, I, you know, you'd have to, talk to, to someone, uh, you know, that, that has had that experience to know for sure, uh, why they decided not to go into music, yeah. but, um, perhaps it was the fact that they just didn't have that, that same pull. The music didn't like demand yeah. that attention from right. them. Yeah. I saw and it a lot at North Texas. I'll, I'll bet you did. Yeah. I mean, that's a, a program with a lot of depth, a lot of music majors mm-hmm. too. So you can, you can see See it so both happening many, and not happening. Right. So many music majors and watching, 
watching from the freshman class to, you know, who's graduating to who's still doing music now, it never stops blowing my mind. The, the, the people who stop yeah. <laughs> like that. I just think if I had an ounce of the talent you have, like I, I would be doing so many things with that, you know, not to make it like about that, but you know, just to see someone with such incredible talent, just not want, not want it, not be able to kind of figure it out. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a lesson that keeps like smacking me on the side of the head, like, you know, yeah, every year. And and we never know what their journey is though. I mean, that's the other aspect oh, of it. Students will sure. come in to me and say that they're having doubts about going into music uh, or to continuing in music. And uh, sometimes things come out that, um, it's like, okay, that's a you have that's, trauma, yeah, a, tra- yeah. a trauma or a, a, per- a personal situation that you have to work totally. out in your life. Um, because when those things exist, they'll get in the way of the art. Uh, we have to work. Th- we have to work through those, and we we can either get beyond those, or those sometimes they're brick walls that we hit, and we yeah. hit all sorts of creative brick walls right. as artists. Um, that sometimes they stop us, sometimes they just pause us until we figure out that mm-hmm. we either climb over them, walk around them, or smash through right. them. Right. You know, there's there's different ways to do it, but some totally. people will say, "Well, that's it. I, that's as far as I go." Yeah, and I, I would never presume to like have any thoughts about why someone's making those decisions. The lesson that it is for me is like, you know, it's an antidote to my own like imposter syndrome. I think mm-hmm. like there is no recipe to who who this works for. You know, it, it's mysterious and it's kind of it, it's never what you think. So that's right. That helps me remember like. Well, if that person can stop music, like I can definitely keep doing it. <laughs> you know, like it's it's more just like the math is funny. <laughs> like it's yeah. a it's a constant reminder that the math of a career in the arts is really funny. And and maybe it works. Maybe it's self correcting in a way because the number of music majors and people who want to become musicians when they're young, let's say, think that yeah. that sounds like a good idea. Obviously, the industry can't support. Right everybody doing that. So maybe there is a certain amount of, of self-correcting that happens. And yeah, I think, I think there has to be. Yeah. Yeah. How did you decide to major in music? I decided that that was about the only thing I could imagine doing. And and I do remember, um, having a discussion for some reason, I had this idea that maybe I wanted to go to one of the service academies. I grew up Mm. in Colorado Springs, the air force Academy was right there. And so I was looking into that and I had the grades that would maybe get me there. Um, and so I remember talking to my mother once, uh, about it and I said, well, look, this service Academy has this and this has this and the Naval Academy has an orchestra. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think I want to go there cause they have an orchestra <laughs> and my mom, I, I'll never forget this. She said, wait a minute, why would you want to go to the, any service Academy and ch- choose not to go because they don't have an orchestra? Should you consider it? My mom wow. was the one who told me not, she's not, a, was not a musician, but she was the one who said, think about this. Wow. Think about what's important to you. I love and that. It, it totally spun me around yeah. and helped me understand this is what's important in my life. Wow. And so that's how that direction went. And that was maybe my junior year. And my, by my senior year, I was already kind of, the train yeah. was going towards the auditioning for music programs and scholarships and things Did like that. Did you have reservations about it? Were you, were you scared? I wasn't, strangely cool. enough, yeah. um, which maybe I, in retrospect, I, I should have been. Who knows? But I, I think people put too much um, 
at the very beginning of the process, they put too much um, emphasis, oh, yeah. the non-musicians especially, on the, yes. well, can you make a living at this? And what what kind of house do you want to live in? And I mean, all of these, there's all sorts of things yeah. uh, that will will make you doubt right. your path. Right. And right. Um, if those things become what drives you, then it will it will affect your path. Right. There's 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 no way you can go forward if you're worried about not having the type of house or mm-hmm. the type of car or the type right. of bank account that is is some sort of expectation. Sure. And I've never figured out those expectations. And mm. I, I've often um, actually maybe this is the reason I I did went in did go into music. I've often just said, well, that doesn't matter to me. Yeah. Because it does now. I obviously have to have enough. I have, um, you know, two kids who are now um, well, one's graduated from college and one's still in college. So obviously, there were practical considerations. Sure. And perhaps one of my uh, driving factors towards university teaching was the fact that that was yeah stability. There was some more stability there, right? I also found I was good at it. So and I really enjoyed the fact that as a conductor, my orchestra rotated every four years, and I I didn't have to go find another job every you know yeah that is special too. I like that part of being a teacher as well. Like there's always new, there's always kind of new energy. Yeah. I, I think that's a really good point that like these, these questions deserve some patience. I mean, I know that, but I think you said it in a way that's kind of a new idea. Like it's not to say that these things shouldn't be important to you, but just give yourself a second to decide how important, you know, or like don't make a decision, you know, based on bad Intel or based on, you know, just give it a little time. I, I think about that a lot with my high school students too. You know, I always say, if you think there's even a remote possibility you want to major in music, you got to be practicing because there mm-hmm. will come a point in the in the very near future that it will kind of be too late to follow this certain type of path. Um, but, you know, you can always decide not to do it, but you can't always decide to do it. Yeah, I mean, after a certain can, point, but... after a certain point, you're right. Um, it's like every adult that tries to, at age 40, decide to play the piano. Right. It's never... You're never going to have the time invested... Or the can... facility. I mean, there's right. a certain brain development that's that ship has sailed. Yeah, right? I think that's really true. It's not to say you can't reinvent or have new, brand new creative development sure. in older years, but yeah, to, to follow a certain type of a path... Like there's kind of a window, but like the window for like accounting is not going to close. That's right. You know, the window for insurance brokerage is not going to close. You you don't hear many people having career changes and becoming professional musicians in their midlife crisis years, their right. late 40s, Or there are 50s. people who probably could have majored in music. You know, they, they've been practicing all this time. Yeah. Like the kinds of people who will like switch their career to the arts, which like I've interviewed a few people like that. They're That's great. Gr- they're great stories. That's I wonderful. think they're beautiful stories, like testaments to the resilience of the creative spirit. And you know, of that, it, it's a testament to not ignore that thing that's sure. telling you like, this is where you belong. Uh, but on the flip side of that, uh, the students that do music and then decide to become doctors or lawyers or, um, you know, what, whatever yeah. business owners, um, they actually, those are the people that I want to be the people that are caring for me Hell yeah. and the people that are, you know, um, dealing with You've lost nothing. Society. Politics. Yeah. I talk about this all the time. So I think like my, you know, now, now that I've been doing this project a minute, I think my main goal with it is, you know, I just really believe that creativity or like the arts, um, 
require us to develop the kinds of skills that that are necessary for understanding people, for thinking outside of the box, for problem solving. Of course, other people in other careers can learn those skills, but I think they're kind of demanded of us in the, in the arts um, in a way that I just think like these, these skills are so much more important than, than any one medium. And I, I couldn't agree more. Like I want our politicians to be doing art. I want like doctors to be doing art. You know, it's just, it's empathy, <laughs> you know, it's, it's perspective shifting in a way that is such so much bigger, so much more important, I think. Yeah, I totally agree. Okay. My, my pet, my pet message. <laughs> if the world, I mean, that's if, if the world all had that, yeah. what, what better place might we, might we be yeah. um, with just a little bit of, of that training for everyone? To- totally, totally. So um, where did you end up going to school? Um, I did my undergraduate at the University of Northern Colorado in yeah, Greeley. UNC. Yep, UNC. Good, great, great um, state music program. It's a beautiful school. Um, I, I thought about getting a doctorate there. Yeah, it's a good, good, good place for sure. And so that was, you know, for me, a big step moving two hours away from home and sure. living in the dorm and all of that. Uh, my master's was at the University of Iowa and my doctorate's from the University of Arizona cool. down in Tucson. Uh, and in between there, I had a really interesting like foray because I was so interested in world music. I went to study ethnomusicology. Wow, I did not know that about you. Yeah, I, I was I was imagine I, I imagined myself, I guess, as the Indiana Jones of musicologists or something. Yeah. I wanted to go out and study music in you know remote places yeah. with um, uh, music that had not been. Um, as studied and commercialized, um, yeah. even as commercialized as classical music had, had become, um, I, I was really fascinated with that. What I found was that when I went to go study it, I missed performing so much mm. that I had to come back to wow. it. Um, that the, the academic, purely academic side was something I could do, but it wasn't completely fulfilling. Sure, and so I that's really why I, that. I continued you know, my, my path as a violist so and conductor. I love world music too. I took an ethnomusicology class in grad school and read the um, David something with a T, the book on the the Ituri people, like hmm. the the water drumming and like yodeling, and also just felt like, well, I could go live in a rainforest and gather sounds, but no, I couldn't. But it is it's a beautiful like it's beautiful work that I'm really glad there are people doing it. And when you look at all of the world music influences now in, in popular music and classical music, yeah. um, the fact that, that you have, uh, you know, African drumming finds its way into symph- symphonic compositions, yeah. that is, is a wonderful service because mm-hmm. it has brought those, uh, the world music closer, brought the world closer together yeah. by studying the different musical traditions. Right. And like we were just talking about, like, you know, like beholding the beauty of, of an artwork of a, of a people you never would have thought about. There's no better way to humanize, you know, there's, there's no better way to be like, Oh my God. Like there are people who I've never thought about who are people just like I'm a person. Yeah. Um, and maybe seems trite, but it's, it, it isn't. It's, and, and that's the one universal thing that we have is that all people make art right. uh, and it may be an art that we don't quite understand its function, and and some of that is because we we don't have the same cultural understanding that um, that someone that um, right. where the art is is more integrated right. to their everyday life, right. um, where where it's it's something a little different in modern society with all the technology that we have. But. It's so interesting. Um, tell me this: How did you get into conducting, composing versus performance? 
So the the conducting side, I kind of fell into that through the typical undergraduate conducting class that every music major is supposed to take. Got to find your ictus. Right. Got to find <laughs> and learn the beat patterns and all of that. Um, and I found it to be something that I was really good at from the beginning. Wow. And I may go back to the tap dancing stuff. I don't yeah. know. With finding rhythm, right? Uh, and the the teacher at the time who ended up at your alma mater, North, North Texas, as the band director, my undergraduate conducting teacher was Eugene Corporon. Oh who um, has since gone on to very famous wind uh, conducting fame. Cool. Uh, and he, I remember him telling me, he said, you're pretty good at this. You could do this for a living. Cool. It was just a, it was a comment, a side comment after a class. It wasn't a let's come to my office and discuss your career kind wow. of event. It was just a comment that planted a seed. Mm. And that seed became something that I thought the more I did it, the more I really enjoyed it. Mm. And so then my master's degree, which is also in viola uh, performance, um, I, I took a, a real concerted effort to take extra conducting. Mm. And the conductor at the time, uh, James Dixon, took kind of took me under his wing to in, cool. include me in the conducting class. Wow. And then opportunities. When I was at NAU, the conductor retired, and I was doing the chamber orchestra there, and it was just one of those things. It's like, you, do you want to take this? Wow. Do you want to continue on viola, or do you want to take this conducting route? You were teaching route? at NAU. I was, yeah. Okay, I was. Cool. I started very, very young. I was only 26, and I oh was teaching viola, music theory, and yeah. uh, chamber orchestra as Adjunct well. Adjunct or full-time? I was full-time. Wow. That was my first... Cool. It wasn't my first full-time job. It was my first um, full-time like job that I could actually make payments. Sure. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. So... Um, I don't know that much about like your career. Like just... You want to just like kind of story tell me through it? And you, oh, you can gosh, talk sure. about like the kinds of stuff you've done and also like any important lessons. Like just, you know, whatever you want to talk about. Sure. I mean, gosh, I mean, how it's it, tough to know where, where to start, but I guess the... No one knows better than you. Yes, that's a good point. <laughs> Very good. Uh, after my master's, I decided I didn't want to get my doctorate right away because I was tired of school. I was, sure. you know, needed a break. And so I, I hit the audition circuit okay. and I auditioned for several orchestras and I, I won an audition with the Arkansas Symphony. It was a full-time quote, in quotes, sure. full-time position um, with the Arkansas Symphony, principal violist, and the uh, they had a string quartet, like oh. core, they, they, they called it the core musician. There were some core musicians that they said was full-time. Now, this was 1988, and I was making $13,000 a year from the Arkansas Symphony. So even back then, it wasn't a lot of money. That's not great. It was was tight. Um, And so I decided, and I looked at my other colleagues there in Arkansas, and they had been there a long time, and I, I just decided that was not... The path wasn't I, where you were going to wasn't grow. where I wanted to stay. Yeah. Um, I, I grew a lot from that experience mm-hmm. cool. because I had to be self a self sufficient musician and figure a lot of things out and put my shingle out and get students so that I could make. I was going to say, money. did you start teaching while yep. you were there? I did. Do you want to say anything about like just your early relationship as a teacher, like with 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 teaching? Well, I, I think the interesting thing about it is that. You're not that far when you first start teaching, and I probably first started teaching as a, um, a graduate student. Um, you're not that far off in age from the people you're older, teaching, if, yeah, if at all. Yeah, and yeah. even when I went to NAU, I started when I was only 26, and I had students who were 22. You know, yeah. they were seniors, so you're really close in, in age. Yeah. Um, so that that aspect of it is different from start like a beginning student that is you know right. l- little, a little kid, kid or something. Yeah. 
Um, but for me, it was always the the experience of taking someone from where they they were and trying to make them a better musician. It's a great feeling. Yeah, and and learning that, and you always start as a teacher with teaching how you were taught by your teachers, and yeah. the the most important thing that I learned was that I had good teachers, but that they did not have all of the answers. Yeah, and so I then would ask colleagues or I would find, you know, other method books and things like that. It, it began this, yeah. this sort of curiosity and it was a creative search totally. for the, the better, the better etude book and the, that would suit this student better. Um, I, I have really similar feelings about this and it, it always feels to me like teaching is like the medium that we don't talk about as a medium. It's like, yes. it is so creative. In fact, I'm a, I'm convinced I'm a better uh, conducting, uh, you know, is, is on the other end of the spectrum as far as where I am, but, um, conducting is teaching as well. Right. Even if it's with a professional ensemble, you're the only one with the entire score. Right. So you've got a, an orchestra of professionals sitting there and you have to yeah. organize things and, and sort of tell everyone else what's in the score. It's right. a different approach, right. but it's the same thing. It's a, a, a method of discovery that happens whether you're learning to play the open A and the open E string right. for the first time on your violin or whether you are you know looking at a brand new score that nobody knows totally um, that you the first sounds you're going to hear of it are are at the mm. downbeat and then mm. everyone has to figure out what's going on it's amazing i love it i i it's one thing. So I started teaching at BYU when I was 27 and it's one thing that I miss that I, I need to find a way to get it back. Um, cause I, te that's the only time since I finished grad school, I, I taught some undergraduate, uh, vocal jazz groups when I was in college, but it's been the only time in my, in my professional, you know, life that I have, um, been able to conduct a group with, you know, enough people to have complex harmonies and, I, I miss that, you know, it, it is like, it lights up my brain in a particular way. Um, you know, and yeah, making a rehearsal plan, you know, like where are we going to start, you know, trying to foresee what the problems will be having a gut instinct about how you're going to solve some problem. You know, we need a crescendo here to like bridge the gap in like the movement that's going on above, you know, those kinds of things are so like, they're just, they're so uh, tantalizing. It, yeah. it really is. And you are, you are teaching the music by doing that. But, and when you do this with students, then the really exciting thing for me is when, you know, every year we start in September, there's always new students, like in a college orchestra. By the time you get into the March, April season, they're doing a lot of those things instinctively. You don't right. have to tell them anymore. Right. And, and it's different music. It's right. completely different music, but they they start to see the patterns, and they 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 can uh, begin to be intuitive right. about the idea. And so then, if they do something that is not correct for the music, you can explain to them why that was a good thing what you did. However, because of this chord that happens, or because of right. of this um, event that happens in the music, we have to avoid doing that right. you, that gesture. You watch them like learning how to listen across the ensemble. You watch them like looking vertically on their scores if they are able to see multiple parts, which I know in orchestra, it's usually not the case, but for, but they like, can hear them. Right. They, they often don't hear that way when they yeah. start out. They it's, it's tunnel vision. Right, right, right. Yeah. I would love listening to my students. Like, you know, like I would hear them talking to each other, you know, and saying like, well, the chord here is like, you know, C 
sharp nine, C7 sharp nine. So, you know, this probably needs to be tuned a little higher. And like, what's better than that? <laughs> what's better than like, this is a sharp nine and not a minor third. So right. like, we better brighten it up. Um, yeah, and, I, and, it's great. And some of that, you know, if you as a, a teacher or conductor are always doing it yourself, you know, like the, the conductor that, you know, here's the chord and points up, points down, you know, sharper, flatter. Right. Um, and the, the student is never engaged in doing that rather than you expecting. Right. You, you, you say what the expectation is with that kind of tonality, that kind of sound. Right. And then the student is expected to figure out what chord member they have, how to fix that. And if they can't fix it, that's where they, sometimes it's too complicated and the conductor is right. there for a reason, yeah, you know, to right. figure out who has the third of the chord and maybe people don't realize they're doubling with someone in an orchestra across the room right. that you can't hear very well. Right. Uh, choral yeah. music is a little easier that way to sort right. of ascertain who's got what. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I love it. Okay. So you, you started falling in love with teaching and, and can a little, were you doing a little conducting in Arkansas? Yeah, it's kind of, a, um, no, not in Arkansas. Okay. That didn't happen until I went to Arizona. You went to Arizona after Arkansas. Yeah. Any, yeah. any, anything you want to tell about that period? Any like, any? Well, that was the period that everything blossomed. Um, that was the period that when I was playing my viola in an orchestra, I played in the Flagstaff Symphony before I became the resident conductor there. I played for eight years and then was the resident conductor the last two, two years that I was cool. in Flagstaff. Um, but I remember sitting down and playing once and realizing just a, like like a shot going off, everything works. Mm. I'm not thinking about anything. Every time I sat down, I just, everything worked. And it, that was, I don't know, I was maybe wow. 20, 28, 29, something like that. And it was, you know, sometimes you would sit down and you go, oh, this is going to be a struggle. This is, right. and all of a sudden everything was just like smooth wow. and, and it was a, it was a well-oiled machine. And that meant, you know, the whole 10,000 hours or whatever you want to say, mm. I'd put in enough time and I had enough experience with musical styles that I was comfortable with wow. 90% of everything. That's awesome. So that didn't mean I couldn't, I didn't have to practice. That didn't, sure. I mean, none, that, but some of the, the struggle was gone at well, that point. Well, it's like point. the types of challenges that evolve. Yes. Like, yeah. well, how did they? Um, I, I think um, what, what would be a roadblock before, like an articulation issue, a, a, you know, how you move your bow mm -hmm. and change and time it with your left hand became something that was, was, um, uh, totally integrated into executing the music. Wow. So I stopped thinking about it and I just did it. Yeah. Um, did you have like new types of challenges that like started coming into focus? Sure. Yeah, what uh, kinds the, of things? those, those things where I realized I was only reaching at that point, a certain level of expression in the mm. music. And now that all of those roadblocks were out of the way, then what, how much more deeper can I go right. into the expressive side of the music? And that was right about the time I was started conducting full time cool. and that opened started up all of those. Composing more maybe? Um, a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Um, I it, didn't do a lot of composing. I did some composing at that time. Um, but most of it was just realizing what I had missed in music yeah. before by looking at a particular right. piece of music or performing, even a piece of a solo Bach that I'd been playing since high school. Mm. I would play it again and realize that, oh my goodness, Isn't what, how have I missed all yeah. of this, right? <laughs> yeah. And 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 it wasn't something you could just listen to Yo-Yo Ma's recording of a Bach suite and, and say, oh, I'm going to do it like him. It's as you're doing it, you start to see possibilities. Right. 
-hmm. And it's, you start to see, um, you know, it's like you're going down the road and you thought there was, you know, you could go right and you can go left. And now you realize you can go up and down and upside down in every which way with it. Um, some are better choices than others, but the choices are all there. Mm-hmm. It's a really exciting time in music to do that. Totally. Um, there's um, there's nothing like realizing that you're in control of those choices mm-hmm. and that the, the technique that's involved, that you've developed that technique. Right. Uh, it's oh. so exciting to see when students hit that point, yeah. too. That's usually graduate students. Yeah. Uh, undergrad, some undergrads, if they're very talented, will get there. Um, but usually it's why we encourage students to go on and keep studying, keep right. working, because you never get to a level. And that was only the beginning. Then it continues right. the rest of your life. It just oh, it's keeps so going. so amazing. I love it, too. And I feel like I also am always telling my students, like, don't make the mistake of thinking that technique is like the point. Like right. technique is like we our motivation to work on technique is so that we can execute whatever we imagine. Um Okay, let me ask you this. So a lot of professional musicians that I talk to, and I I mean, maybe I just ask this question differently because I'm a musician. Maybe this happens with other mediums too. But I I find that a lot of us, we have to take our more like emotional creativity somewhere else while we're like figuring out these nuts and bolts. Mm -hmm. Um, Did you have any experiences like that? Like, Uh, not well, gosh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know that I've ever thought about that much. I think of it more that I was concentrating so much on the nuts and bolts side of it, the technique. Just kind of maybe that's the way stringed instruments are taught somewhat. Mm-hmm. I think um, voices can be like that too, yeah. depending on where you're studying. Um, but it can uh, get pretty technique heavy. I remember I went to a music festival in the early '90s and played um, for the uh, the. Um, uh, he was the violist. Oh, what a quartet at the time. I can't recall. Um, it wasn't the Tokyo quartet, but it was, a, it was another quartet, uh, Atara Rod. And I remember playing for him and everything was working technically. It was, I played, played a, a piece for my Max Reger, a solo piece for him. And afterwards he said, well, that's really nice. Um, would you, would you consider, um, using, doing something different with your vibrato? Yeah. And I thought, what are we talking about with my vibrato? I mean, I yeah. tell me something that, you know, fix fix my technique. Right. But there was really nothing for him to talk about from that perspective. Right. He was talking about the, not, and it wasn't about the technique of the vibrato. It was about getting like the that storytelling, storytelling. The expression. Yeah. yeah. And about the same time, I did a, a master class uh, with a, a teacher, Alice Preves, who um, really threw me for a loop because I played this opening of a concerto for her. And she said, that's nice. Now play it for me differently. Mm-hmm. Played a different way. And I finished that. And she goes, that was interesting. Played a different way. Right. And it, it really threw me for a loop. I said, what do you mean? That's the way I play it. <laughs> right. So the way it goes, yeah. right? And so she was trying to show that there's all of these potentials that if you, you inflect this note differently, that changes the notes that follow. Right. And I, I needed to hear that at that time. And, and she was a good enough teacher to know that that's what I needed to hear. Yeah. That that it's my a hard other teachers, to learn. it is because then you 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 think you're your on top pride, of it. Your pride gets a little oh, crackly. Yeah, it it hits. Yeah, and and my wife Maria still talks about that. She was at that master class, wow. and she she just thought that was was the, the the funniest thing to in a way to see Rob falter a little bit and sure. say, "What do you mean Wait, play what? it differently? What uh, do you mean?" I love it. Yeah, that's fragile though. I mean, I I'm sure you've had to have similar conversations with students, and I have too. And it's like just to tell someone, like you said, who's invested that amount of time for that technical proficiency, like, okay, now 
focus on the real thing. Yes. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. It's so easy to forget. And, and that's, you know, I do think it's something that as musicians we, we deal with. So I think a lot of musicians, we kind of lose that like spiritual thing or whatever you want to call it. Uh, while we're just grinding, you know? Yes. And we have to do a lot of that, don't we? Yeah. That, that whole grinding the notes out, making sure that, that everything is, is right. Cause also no one wants to go hear something that is uh, emotionally engaging, but, but out of tune and not right. very, not very well together. You, you I mean, that's, both. yeah. You need, you need the technique to execute that vision. Right. But you got to have the vision. Right. Yeah, you need both. That's one thing that I, when I got into conducting, that I love because you have to approach it from the vision. Right. You have That's five rehearsals way. to get yeah. something together. You have to have the end vision in in place before you have the sight reading rehearsal. Right, right, And right. so that's not something I would do as a viola player sitting down in the first sight reading rehearsal. I'd sit down and open the folder for the first yeah. time like everybody else in the right, orchestra. Right. But the conductor has to say, this vision. is where we're going with this. Right. I talk about this with my private students who are almost always solo vocalists. Like, you know, they're going to be singing with piano accompaniment or a band accompaniment, but, but, you know, they're really kind of the lead instrument, um, in, you know, pop voice. And I, I will frequently approach pieces with my students, like, like a conductor, like, what's the point of this? Like, where, what is the experience that you want the audience to have? Like, at what moment do you surprise them? Like, what's your plan for having the listener in the palm of your hand? Um, and I feel like it's kind of the only way to approach that kind of thing. Cause it, especially if you're covering something that was originally done by Whitney Houston, no one cares if you're right. hitting the notes the same, like she already did it, you know, right, we're not impressed. Right. Um, so, you know, especially when you're not doing original music, like that's the only thing there is. Right. <laughs> like, can you surprise someone, you know? Right. Otherwise you're just a, a, a Vegas um, it's karaoke. Dr- dress up act. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. right. It's karaoke unless you think of it like an artist and you, you know, imprint your vision on it somehow. And, and pop music is filled with that. And classical music, obviously, is how many performances of a Brahms symphony have there been? Right. You know, hundreds of thousands right. of performances since Brahms had, had written those symphonies. And we, we still play it. Right. And the, the artists that, that will um, not just cover a song, but sort of reinvent a song uh, that was, was done a generation ago. Right. And that it be be um, something that is artistically viable right. and not just... Oh yeah, they're singing that song from right. the past. Artistically viable. I love that. Well, and sometimes I, I find it's even a matter of like, what do we program next to it? You know? Yeah. You can make someone hear that Brahms differently, you know, depending on what's right before and what's after and how you talk about it, you know, how you're introducing the show, what you name the show, like, you know, all of those kinds of like bigger picture things will help us like create those branches and see kind of new things. Right. So and because there's audience expectation. And there's also audience experience. Right. And and they don't necessarily go hand in hand. Right. If they only get the expectation, right. hey, it may be kind of a boring performance. Sure. But if there's also an experience that they can grow right. from as an audience. Right. Um, right. Like, because that's me... who we're reaching. And let's right. not, not mistake the fact that without the audience, we don't exist. Right. It doesn't matter how much we love music and we want to do music. We've got to have... Yeah. You've got to have an ability to share that art. Right, right. What is it if it's not, you know, entering someone's ears and yes. heart and eyes? Um, so do you have any jobs between NAU and you in 
coming here? One, yeah. I actually uh, went to the University of Kentucky after NAU, and I, I was there uh, for only three years. It wasn't it wasn't the right fit at the right time. Although, sure. interestingly, I started a summer gig there in Lexington that I have done now for 22 years. Oh, wow. uh, and so it's uh, called A Grand Night for Singing, and it's all um, cool. show tunes. Fun. Started out as Rogers and Hammerstein, and now it's shows that um, last year we were doing shows that hadn't even opened because cool. of COVID. Wow. Um, things like uh, Six, uh, which is a, a Broadway show about Henry VIII's wives, wow. and there's this music that I didn't even know it existed, yeah. and there were no orchestrations for it yet. Holy we had cow. to create orchestrations. Oh my gosh. So um, that's, that's awesome. a, a big event. We do um, either six or eight shows every year. Singers from Kentucky? Local uh, singers? Largely from Kentucky, from their um, their vocal program there, but also it's kind of a town and gown event, so there's, mm. there's people that... Uh, that have done it for years that are in the community cool. as well. Cool, cool, so, cool. But it's a it's a great event that I, I travel back for every year. So it's one of those things where you um, you have connections. You never burn your bridges if right. you can help it, yes. <laughs> if at all possible. Because yeah. I've been back to Arizona to do things as well. And your global family is important. Yes. Yeah. I could. I really agree. So um, when you first got hired here, what were you teaching? Um, well, by that time, I was established as a conductor, conductor. mainly, right? Um, still played play viola and still do today. But um, the um, idea was I w- came from Kentucky as director of orchestras to Utah as director of orchestras. Okay. That was the, the, the position okay, cool. coming here. And then and, how did you... Oh, go ahead. And so that was, you know, that was 20 years ago now. This is wow. my 20th year at, at, yeah. at the U. Oh my gosh, congratulations. So thanks, That's yeah. They, I'm expecting a pin. I haven't gotten anything They yet. should throw you up like a little, like you should have a, you should have a banquet, you I, know? That, I like that, <laughs> that idea. That seems yeah. appropriate. Yeah, at least a, a slice from the pie <laughs> or dinner something. Dinner party. Right, yes. Yeah, some kind of a little thing. Um, when did you start working with the Salt Lake Symphony. Did you start the Salt Lake Symphony? Like, I really no, don't know. Actually, that, that's a, a great story. That that orchestra started in 1976 wow. as the Salt Lake Repertory Orchestra. That was their name. And the idea, they weren't going to play concerts. They were just going to play music. They were just a bunch of amateurs that liked playing music. Want to and, be, want to rehearse. Yeah, let's get together this week and play Brahms. And let's get together this week cool. and play Shostakovich. Really um, and so... After a while, though, they realized, hey, we're pretty good at this. We should give a concert. (laughs) And so that's how that started back. I think 1977 or 78 was their first concert. Uh, And there have been several conductors since um, before me. Um, and, uh, in night or in 2006, I'd been here four years. Um, the music director position opened there and I applied and received that, uh, wow. that position. So I have been with the Salt Lake Symphony now. This is my uh, 15th year. Holy cow. So it's not like really sure how we part count of your life. It totally is. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a dual life, but it's nice that I'm essentially in the same building yeah. because the Salt Lake Symphony rehearses and does most of our performances in, right. at the, up at the university of Utah. So are there any other parts of your life, your like creative life that I don't know about? Like you teach at the U, you do the Salt Lake Symphony, what else? What well, else are you up to? there's. I mean, we mentioned the poetry thing. That was a. Yeah. That's a, an important part of my creative Tell life. Me, when did it begin? Um, about t- uh, ten to twelve years ago, wow. I would say. Um, as far as as like actually uh, getting serious about doing it. Yeah. Tell me and, everything. Uh, it was something that I just, you know, decided that I had these ideas and I'd start writing them down mm. and everything from a, a, a three line haiku to something that was something else that yeah. I didn't know and it was. 
you know, I, I, write, I write journals and it would, things would come out of journals. I would look at it and I would say, are you left-handed? I am. I'm yes. You see too. me, me yeah. see me right in the air here. I'm one of those also. Yes. See another it's thing. Creative thing. I told you we've got, so, I like, things. I think there's a bit of a, I think there's a bit of a kindred souls thing <laughs> going could on. Be. So, uh, I would look at those things and I would say, that's like a, a poetic line. That's like got meter to it. And it, it has like a, there, there's, it just got this great thing. So I started this little um, file of, I called it poetic lines without a home. I love that. So that's it, po- that's I a poetic line yeah, without a home. There you go. And yeah. so it was, and I still have that on my computer is a big file just with yeah. random lines. And I would like look at them sometimes and say, I could do something with that. And so yeah. it was totally a hobby. And I, yeah. I, I've always enjoyed reading poetry. Uh, and so I'm sure there were a lot of influences, you know, yeah. someone, some scholar in the future, if they ever cared to look at my, my stuff would say, oh yeah, well, that's obvious that he looked, he's like Wendell Berry and Robert Frost and all of these sorts of things. Um, but in 2018, I decided to, um, do something that made me uncomfortable, which was, (laughs) and, and as a musician by 2018, I was quite comfortable Mm -hmm. with most of what I, what I do. Yeah. Right. So uh, I, I'm not uncomfortable standing in front of an orchestra right. or even no uh, like this weekend conducting a, a show I've never conducted before in the pit. Wow. I, I st- what, I know what show are you doing? We're doing Sweeney Todd this weekend. Sweet. So which is not an easy show to do. There's, no. there's things that I that I have to really there's be th- aware of. There's things. Things, a lot of things. <laughs> there are things. A lot of things. Um, and so, but the, I'm not uncomfortable doing that because right. I, I, I know, know how it. to I know how to manage it, right? But in 2018, I had a, a particular poem that I thought, this one is, is something, and I'm going to take the chance and send it to a publisher. Wow. And so I sent it uh, to a publisher, and it was accepted wow. immediately. First one out of the box. Now there have been shit. some since then that have been rejected. Yeah. That's that's part of the game we play. Um, but that was incredibly validating that what I was doing had a voice. Yeah. And I think that's the main thing when we do music or we, we write any anything, whether mm-hmm. it's a novel or uh, even in our daily journal, is that there, a voice develops, and that right. by that time I'd maybe been doing it for about eight years, wow. just trying things. I love and there was that. a voice that had developed. That's so incredible. And again, it's this artifice thing of like, someone would be like, oh, like your first poem got published, but like you had been doing it for eight years. Right. Just, yeah, privately tinkering with this thing. And it was not with any idea that I would you know, become a published author or right. that now, I mean, I have a chat book that just came out. That's the, the first one. So for four years now, I have been published and have had some success um, and not doing this full time. I mean, it's just something that I do on the side, but it's very much a creative, uh, creative outlet for me. Yeah. um, In a different way. You needed it. Like, like what, what's the, in a different way that, that, you know, your other projects weren't giving you. I think for me, poetry, I mean, like, like song lyrics and which are very poetic in, in most ways. Um, they were in, it enabled me to express what I needed to express and, uh, whether it was something that was very deep, um, you know, psychological need to express something or whether it was just noticing a, a a beautiful flower in the mountains or something. Um, it was a way to express that in a way that was a lot deeper than just putting a Facebook post up right. about it or a right. picture or something like that. It, it made, it, it made a connection to me. So I felt I had to express it. I really understand that feeling. Like it's, I, it's hard to even describe like what it is, but like there's, 
there are these things that just ha- leave a pressure. <laughs> like yeah. they just leave a pressure and you just have to put them somewhere. Yes. I really understand that. And, and I think that's, that's healthy. That's how artists survive mm-hmm. because we can't keep it all bottled up. Oh, yeah. And yeah. And men, men, I mean, that's for ev- everyone. It's not just artists. We all have these things and we find ways to blow off steam. Some people, right. you know, jump off of the, the Some mount- people exercise. That's right. You, they, ex- you kind of exercise, don't uh, you? Kind of. Well, that's, that's more that I have to exercise. <laughs> yeah. Get to a certain age, you better sure, exercise. Sure, sure. Uh, but, you know, some people blow off steam by this mountain outside of your house, taking a hang glider and jumping off the, right. jumping off the mountain. I need to do that. So that's... That, that's something yeah. everyone has those. And someone those writes things. a haiku. That's yeah, right. I also frequently feel like I just need to write something. I just, I have an essay that's just sitting. It's just yeah. sitting in my mind and in my soul and I just have to write it. Um, yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask, oh, do you always like, do you feel a need to do stuff that scares you? Like, do you feel like at any given time you kind of need to be doing something that scares you? The answer must be yes. Yeah, because you always are doing. Scary I'm always things. doing things <laughs> that are outside of that comfort zone. I come up with a, and I always will ask myself afterwards, like, do I really need to be doing this anymore? Like some crazy concert idea, mm-hmm. putting together a concert with a, a singer of Iranian band, Iranian music. I saw that concert, Monica Jalili. Right, I went there. I was like, what? What am I doing here? And yet, it was a great artistic experience it and it was different night. from anything I've ever done way outside my comfort zone with, you know, yeah. members of the Silk Road, uh, ensemble yeah. that were playing along with me. I'm thinking, wow, am I, do I even need to be on stage with these yeah. people? These are like real musicians. You know, there's that whole imposter syndrome mm-hmm. again, mm-hmm. but making yourself uncomfortable with that actually opens up mm-hmm. these, these wonderful possibilities yeah. of expression that, that just won't come out any other way. It's so true. And I, I really relate to that as well. I think, yeah, I also, just the way that you said that, like, I think the way that it happens for me is like, I have a vision, just like you said, like you have this beautiful idea and you're not at all thinking about how horrifying it's going to be to execute this idea. You're just like, wouldn't that be amazing? Yes, That's how it starts. It has to. Right. It starts with just this, like, and then I get very naive sometimes. Like, I think it's a, it's a coping mechanism, but I get like, this is, I can do this. And then in the middle of the project, I'm like, dear Lord, what have I done? What have I done? What have I done? done? We're always there in the middle of the project. Well, Kristen Bromley, do you know her? She's a guitar player. She said this thing that I, I interviewed her a while ago and she said this thing that I think about all the time. She said, I always want to make sure I'm at the beginning of a project, at the middle of a project and at the end of a project, because the beginning is so exciting in this particular way. The end is exciting in a different kind of a way. And the middle sucks. Yeah. So to have this simultaneous energy of like, you know, you, you have to kind of be at it, at each stage of a project at any one time, in order to ever finish any of them. That's a great, that's great advice. That's really great advice. I think about it all the time. And yeah, I also frequently find myself doing something and Andrew will be like, why are you doing this again? And I'm like, it's too late to stop now. That's right. I'm, I'm a hundred hours into this thing. So yeah, I I really get that. You got to see it through it. You, You put so much effort into it. Eventually you realize that the the, the momentum is going and you're going to see it through. Yeah. And yeah. there's so much satisfaction doing that, that, you know, when you start the next project, that's going to be terrifying. You can look back at the previously terrifying things you've done and know yeah. is I'll figure it out. Right. We're going to do it. Yeah. I was at that concert. Um, I was sitting in the stage in the stage left 
wing, the, bo- oh, like the, the box. Yeah, the box seat up there. It was, yeah. it was lovely. It just could look yeah. right and down well, on since, her. Uh, so you went to the one with uh, the Salt Lake Symphony. It's yeah. since that oh, time we've yeah. done one with the university as well. We've oh. done an additional concert. Cool. Uh, so, you know, that might open up other avenues. Right. I mean, who who knows? That yeah. may be, uh, it's not a one and done, it's a two and done <laughs> since yeah. we've done two concerts. Yeah. But it might open up some other possibilities, not sure. just for a concert like that, but for some other thoughts. Right, um, right. And the second one opened up um, ideas we didn't have for the first one. So we did um, uh, partnerships with the Center for Middle East Studies. Cool. And we had like conversations about this music and what it was what it meant to have banned music, which is something in the, the U.S. that we you know, we talk about banned books and things like that, but we don't really understand how if you get caught with a certain thing, listening to a certain piece of music, you could be thrown in jail. Wow. And that was a, an important conversation for yeah. to have with college students who just sort of right. assume everything's free, which is kind of a, a right. one of the great freedoms we have in, as Americans. Yeah. That's like your, that's also like your ethnomusicology passion, like weaving itself back in. Yeah, probably. I think you can look back on all of those things and see many of those ideas uh, that I've had, like working with Carlos Nakai is another one, the Native American flutist. Yeah. Um, that was probably, there's some, some fascination there yeah. just culturally. Well, and you never know, like, you know, you were interested in ethnomusicology and then now like our, you know, take action to bring you know, to, to infuse those passions with what you're doing. And the poetry is probably the same way, you know, it's, it's, it's eight years tinkering and then you, there's a book now and then who knows, you know, you just, right. you kind of never know what, what path you're on yeah. <laughs> or like what purpose something is going to play. Right. You just got to kind of trust that intuition and I, come I, what may. I think it's the idea of the, you know that that concept again of, of let's let's just make a backyard play. Let's do it. Let's do the Olympics in the neighborhood. Right. Let's Why just not? Go back to, Sounds fun. And and at the end, uh, you, you look back on it and you say, "There's that old David Letterman sketch of is this anything?" You know, <laughs> yeah. they would look at something and go, "Is this really anything?" Um, at the end, you look back and you say, "Yeah, that was something." Yeah. And that led to something else. And right. I mean, there, there's there's always a connection right. to be made with that. So and it's, sometimes it's a really long. It's a yeah. long game. Yeah. Um, do you have any like pet? Uh, I think we're kind of like wrapping up. Yep. Do you have any like favorite kind of topics that you are like soapboxes? Like, you know, the state of the arts, the state of music, why it matters, like anything that you love talking about that you would like to say? I, I think that one of the things that I'm really, really passionate about is that concept of sharing music and mm. sharing the musical experience. Mm. And of course, conductors do that naturally because we stand in front of people that we yeah. tell them what to do, right? right? We're sharing sharing those things. Um, the That concept is important from the very beginning levels, whether it's a El Sistema program mm. um, in an underserved area or whether it's the, the Metropolitan Opera. And that we have to remember that that is what music is all about. It's mm. not about arts dollars and and glitzy events and and uh, vienna balls and things like that yeah. those 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 kind of money sides of the arts which is is undeniably important is not why we do it and right. it's not why people consume art as well meaning they will go downtown and buy a ticket to go right. see the ballet or to go see a broadway show or the symphony um, that aspect of we have to find a way that 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 value is seen 
That right. if you're seeing um, somebody at a, a bar uh, do a set, that that's just as valid and just as important a way that we experience art. But it's always about sharing. Yeah. Um, it has, and that aspect of it means it's important that we are established as musicians across the entire country. Mm-hmm. It's not it's the sense of that we're only successful if we've made it at Carnegie Hall. Um, that's a that's a, a relic of the past. Right, I and really it, agree. It used to be that way. It really did. If you didn't have certain things on your resume, you wouldn't be considered successful. But now um, it matters what you do in your community mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. how you're bringing music to your community. That's going to feed you as an artist. Right. Um, right. And if that totally. isn't if that isn't you know the most important thing that I can think of and to instill in my students, I, I don't know what is. Is there something that you feel like you want to share like with audiences? Like, do you have like a, is there something that you're hoping audiences will experience or like, what's your purpose about it? Yeah. I, well, you know, with classical music, we, we deal with some new music, but most of it is established repertoire. And so we have understood that just like a great novel is always going to be a great novel. Um, this, these great pieces of music by Beethoven or Mozart, um, they deserve to be heard because they have a message and the audience, if we can do that in a way that the audiences are open to receiving that message, that message will come through and give individual Mm. meaning. It's, there's a general thing, a general C major meaning that comes through to everything with a piece, but there's also where someone can hear a piece and have a tear in their eye for actually a different reason. Right. Um, the other day we played um, a piece at a School of Music event, uh, the Nimrod from the Enigma Variations, which is a, a very heartfelt, slow, incredibly emotional piece. Wow. Um, it was written for his um, uh, love that he had for a friend of his. Wow. I mean, it was a, this depth of, of a personal connection, but we prefaced it to talk about uh, the situation in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And uh, how it's how it's very important that we remember we're all part of the same human family. Right. We played the piece only three minutes long. The whole place, including the orchestra, was in tears. Yeah. Um, and that's the power of music right there is that it could make that connection in a different way yeah. and meet people where they are right now. Yeah. Um, and that's what I, I, I hope to do, be able to do as, as a musician or as any, any type of, of artistic expression that I have, including if in the end, if I can live my life in an, in a creative enough way that even in the things that I, are not art, you right. know, the, the interactions I have with people that are just mundane, that those actually can have meaning because of that approach. You're speaking my language. It's so beautiful. I I feel really, really deeply the same way. Like the goal as an artist is for that artistry that we're cultivating to bleed into every small thing. Absolutely. Every tiniest interaction. Yeah. If that's, I mean, there's no greater goal. Yeah. If, If living an artful life. If you could uh, could imagine something as as again mundane as buying um, a, a soda at the gas station after you fill up or something, and mm-hmm. to have that be a meaningful experience because of the way you approach it, yeah, that that would be a, a wonderful goal. My listeners are going to love hearing you say this because, like, I talk about this like interacting with cashiers all the time. <laughs> like, it's just like I I it's in like my own values to like 
just have the kind of faith that any interaction can be a beautiful, memorable one. And to just kind of like live my life, like with that possibility in mind, which means like staying open. It means, you know, having a human experience with every human that you brush shoulders with, which feels pretty important. And, and in the end, isn't that what we're trying to do as artists remain vulnerable and open so that we can be as honest as we possibly can. Yeah. Be as human as we can. Yeah. I, I really agree. Well, yeah. there's no, there's not going to be a better ending than that. Great. So I always ask everybody to kind of like wrap up questions, um, just so that, you know, our endings aren't awkward. <laughs> that was a really nice ending though. Um, so on this day, what's your dream collaboration? Someone you'd love to work oh with. Gosh. You can assemble a team. You can, you know, summon someone from the grave. Oh, even, even we Whatever can have a want. seance. It can wow. be multimedia. Wow. Like what's, what's the dream collaboration? Oh my goodness. You can go small or huge. What what an, a wonderful question! I was not <laughs> expecting this one. So, um, I, I often tell my students that um, you know we there's things that we would like to ask um, Brahms, uh, you know, a, after we all die and we see him in the great mm-hmm, beyond, and mm-hmm. yet he'll probably slap us upside the head and, and just you speak speak in German, right? Oh, yeah, sure. it's like dumm Kopf, boom, and then we're yeah, it's like okay, we obviously missed it. Sorry, uh, missed, Brahms. missed that whole point, right? Um, you know, I think. For me, what I'm really interested in right now is um, the idea of the the juxtaposition of words and music. Mm. Now, you know, there's always been that with, you know, of course, choral music and songs. Mm. And I mean, all, all of this has always existed. But the idea that spoken word and music mm. can come together. And I've done some projects that way with either spoken words of, of just normal people, immigrants, that um, yeah. you know will will we'll speak their words, and then music is written for that. But for me, mm-hmm. I love the idea of a project. And if I could bring anyone back from the dead, it would be someone like Duke Ellington uh, mm-hmm. to do do something like this that combines music and words. He would love that. <laughs> of of you know sort of this this entire concept of equality yeah. and and diversity where you're you're taking poets that are expressing things Maya Angelou another one yeah. um, sadly that we'd have to now bring back from yeah. from the grave um, to to do that and to do readings alongside with powerful pieces of music that weren't necessarily meant to accompany yeah. that that's what I was saying before like yeah there's you know giving uh giving a little prompt before a piece can make someone feel like a, a brand new way about the piece like that feels really intuitive to me I I love I love being presented with that kind of media like when someone will or even just you know when a a, a TV show will have like a quote at the beginning yes you know like focuses that, your mind yes like yeah. give me a filter like give me a lens and then, you know, give me another one and show me the same movie. Like I just, I feel like those, those things are so powerful as such powerful tools for perspective shifting. And yeah, that kind of focus that, I mean, I'm, I'm the target audience for that concert. Yeah. So make sure I know when it's happening. So I guess for me is, you know, Duke Ellington died. He had gone from a big band leader to a writer of orchestral music. Yeah. Um, and he, he was just kind of going, getting into this idea of, of these types of concerts, yeah. his, his concert uh, concept of, of bringing in all sorts of different artists together. I yeah. think, you know, what would I, that question of, 
had he lived another 10 or 15 years mm. or or had you know Mozart lived or Schubert lived another 20 years those kinds of things what sorts of projects would there mm. there be possible Love um, that and I, I think as artists something I'd like to do is I'm not going to be any of those people I'm not going to write finish their music for them or their their voice for them but that idea that we're forwarding yeah. the ideas it's a that legacy. they have. Yeah. I love that. And I think Duke Ellington, I, I agree with you. Like he, he was such a, um, he loved works, you know, he loved program. Yes. And yeah, I he think, was very good at that too, yeah. putting together that, that whole yeah. idea. He was, yeah. was an inspirational programmer. He, it would be, it would be wonderful to have him, you know, be able to comment in that way on what, what's going on in our world now. now. But you've given me a lot to think about because that, now I might think Yay. of something else in about you know 48 hours, I might, I might contact you and say, wait a minute, do people this always is what do. it is. I can't tell you how often people say that sitting here, which it tells me I'm, something right is happening. Yeah, yeah, it also tells me that's something I should have been thinking <laughs> yeah, about. Yeah. Well, now you are, now yes. you are. Um, and then finally, um, tell everybody where to find your work. Well, you can find me a couple of different places. Um, University of Utah, the School of Music, has all of the events that are happening there. The cool. Salt Lake Symphony, which is uh, www.saltlakesymphony.org, has our entire list as uh, as well uh, there. And then you can find me on my my blog, which has links to um, certain poetic projects, is beforethedownbeat.wordpress.com. Okay. And what's the title of your book? The title of the book is called 30. And it is 30 poems, though the, the, the least creative part of that book, I think, is the title. 30. It's, it's just fine. 30. <laughs> um, and it, it, it's out already or it just... It, it is. Okay. And um, it's, uh, it was just released. It's a limited uh, printing right now. And I'm looking into yeah, how to put it on Amazon and do all that. I'm, cool. I'm, learn, I'm learning. That's my, my new skill to learn in the mm-hmm. next few months. I hear you on that one. Like the, those tech skills are like they're they're knocking at the door. Yep. <laughs> well, Robert, it was so wonderful to have you here. I've been wanting to interview you for so long. And I'm just I'm thrilled that it's finally happened. It's my, my pleasure to interview you. Well, thank you so much for having me, Emily. Thanks for listening to Artifice. Our theme song is As You Are from My Album Masks with artwork and merch designs by Sarah Keel. If you'd like to recommend a professional artist for an interview on the podcast, you can reach me through my website, emilymerrellmusic.com. That's E-M-I-L-Y-M-E-R-R-E-L-L music.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks again. Have a great week.